Well, good morning and welcome here, and happy Valentine's Day. Uh, I heard a, a fantastic Valentine's story, or I actually read it this last week, and, uh, and I'd like to share it with you, but I, I do kind of need to let you know, gentlemen, that it's going to make us all look really bad. Um, but I uh, was reading this, this story, best proposal story I've ever heard. So this guy wants to, true story, he wants to propose to his wife. So they go to a lake somewhere, and they get in a canoe, and they canoe out to this lake. And out at the lake, there's a nice little, you know, meal, kind of type lunch type thing spread out. So they enjoy this meal. Then a speedboat comes by the island, picks them up, takes them back to shore. At shore, there is a limousine waiting for them at shore, then that takes them to a private airfield. At the airfield, there is a small private plane that flies them off to some little chapel, and then at this chapel, it's all decorated, and then he proposes, and of course she says yes. And then afterwards, they get in this super old beater pickup, like barely runs pickup, and they drive away. And afterwards, he proceeds to explain how every single vehicle has some kind of symbolic reference to their life, right? So like the canoeing is like when they have to work together, and the plane is like when other people will carry them, and, and, and the pickup is is growing old together and all this other kind of stuff. So that was a proposal story. But then this guy realized that he had proposed on the 31st. So every time there was a 31st in the calendar, he would buy his wife a gift and hide it in the house. And so just just whenever it was the 31st, she would just wake up and just start looking for this gift that was that was hidden in the house, right? And you know, you hear that story and you're like, I am awful. Like, I am just such a bad person. And um, as much as I appreciate the fact that that somewhere in our history, the government decided that men were slow enough that we needed a dedicated holiday to remind them to be romantic. Um, one of the wonderful things that we're learning in Song of Solomon is what does it mean to be romantic on a on a day-to-day basis on a month-to-month basis and um so this this, it's a great holiday happy valentine's do something nice i hope it's wonderful but just know that as we work through song of solomon we are we are trying to teach ourselves how to do this more than just like a once a year government sanctioned holiday type thing so let's do a word of prayer and then we are going to worship Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you for a good holiday where we remember and remind one another what it is to be romantic. But God, also as we study your word, as we study scripture, as we uh, study your, your perfect commandments, God, you teach us how to relate to one another on a day-to-day, week-by-week basis and not just once a year. 
Lord, as we look through Song of Solomon today, as we study a situation where they experience a little bit of conflict, God, I pray that you would open our eyes wide to how you would live our lives, to how you would have us interact with one another, to how we can live godly lives that honor you. We love you, Lord. Amen. Please stand with us as we worship. God is the best Valentine we could ever have. His love never fails. His love is constant. It fills us completely. We love because he has first loved us. Nothing we have, all that we have is because of him. We have nothing without him. So let's just um, worship him this morning um, for his faithfulness and how he fills us completely with his love. Feel free to sit when you need to, raise your hands, kneel, whatever it is to worship the Lord this morning. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, holy, holy. Sing a new song to him who sits on. 
darkness fills the night, it cannot hide the light. Shall I fear? You crush the enemy underneath my feet. You are my sword and shield, though troubles linger still. Shall I? Yeah. 
Herzog was born in uh, 1850 in Dover, England. Uh, became a Christian as a young girl. Came over to the United States at age 21. Was married at age 25. Together, her and her husband had a little daughter, Lily. Um, and one day, they were at the beach uh, in New York on Long Island. They were doing a picnic lunch there on the beach. And while they were doing their picnic lunch, they heard cries from help from the water. And there was a young boy who was drowning in the water. So Louise's husband ran into the water to rescue this young boy. But this disguised lad grabbed onto her husband and, and dragged him down. And both were drowned at sea. And in the following weeks and months, perhaps even years, Louisa worked through her grief. And as she was working through that grief, or after she had worked through that grief, she penned these words. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise. Just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust. Thou hast proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust thee more. I find it remarkable that in this season of deep, deep grief, she lands on words like trust and rest and understanding. I don't know what life is like for you this week. Maybe it's remarkable joy. Maybe it's grief. Maybe it's pain. Maybe it's sin. I don't, I don't know what your story is. But know that there is a path that ends in rest, to trust in Jesus, and to rest in him. Let's read the story together. Heavenly Father, Lord, whatever it is that's just on our hearts and our minds this morning, whether pain or sorrow or joy or excitement or hurt, Whatever it is, Lord, God, we bring it before you. And so we don't want to carry this anymore, God, but you do carry it. good to 
back with you. Um, you know, last week I, I was gone, uh, this, this last Sunday, and, and really just this, uh, this entire week. I was very privileged to go to a, a biblical counseling conference in Lafayette, Indiana. And uh, this was something that Joanne and I both went to last year, and I was able to, to go again. And uh, while I was there, I attended a lot of lectures, um, probably close to about 40 hours worth. Um, they were great. I, I loved it. But, but what they would do is they would take just some massive topic like um, ADHD or um, how past sexual history affects marriage or working with parents whose teens are being bullied or uh, counseling the coercive abuse of husband and that kind of thing. So take some massive topic and then some guy who has about 25, 30 years of experience in that one topic would show up, talk to you for an hour and then leave, and then the next person would come in and, and, and do the same thing. So it was, it was wonderfully inspirational, but at the same time, just completely <laughs> overwhelming. And, uh, and was, yeah, it was great. But one of the core things that, probably w- one of my favorite things, though, coming away from, from that conference, that really is, is just kind of underlined their, their entire philosophy, is how do you have people helping people using Scripture? I mean, if we believe that Scripture is sufficient, that, that it is the inspired word of God, and that it, that it has the power to speak to all areas of our life, how do we see people helping people using Scripture? And that was, um, I'm loving that concept, and, and, you know, now thinking through, okay, now how do we apply that broadly uh, here at Henderson MD? So it's great stuff. And if I end up going next year, I should probably start taking some of you with me, so it's, it's all good. We are in Song of Solomon today. We've been here for a couple of weeks now. Um, Song of Solomon is one of five wisdom books that are included in Scripture. Um, so they've, someone has, they've taken all the, the books of the Bible and they've said, these books deal with history and these books deal with uh, prophecy and, and these books deal with the life of Christ. But kind of in the middle, there's five and they say these are good wisdom books. And so Song of Solomon is one of these wisdom books. Uh, we believe that it was written by, so- by Solomon himself. Uh, Solomon was a very wise man, and he also wrote um, a, lot of, a lot of proverbs. I think there's over 3,000 proverbs, and I think over 1,000 psalms. And uh, he says, this is my best work, uh, which, is, which is pretty neat. Song of Solomon is a poem about the romantic relationship between two people. Uh, it is poetry, uh, and beyond that is Hebrew poetry. And beyond that, it includes cultural compliments. And so these things make it very difficult to understand Song of Solomon unless you have someone who can kind of decode sort of some of the imagery for you. And um, so it it can make it difficult, but at the same time, it it makes it safe handling for for people of all ages. Uh, The first thing that we witness, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, going to chapter 2, verse 7, The book starts with her saying, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Right after that, she dives in speaking of this man's character, saying that his name is like perfume or or scented oil poured out. And I love that as a starting point for this book. That this entire relationship starts with the quality character of this man. After that, then she speaks about her own character and, 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 and we see her character in the book. And, um, and we also see that he, he nurtures her mind. That that's one of the first things he does. He nurtures her mind, and as a result, her perception of herself changes. 
He begins early on in the book by, by saying, don't look at me, my skin is dark. So culturally, that was, that was a bad thing. Um, only the lower class you know, had to work outside. And so, so by cultural standards of that day, she was not, at least in that regard, she was not a good-looking gal. But as he cultures and, and cultivates her mind, she comes to the point where she says, I'm a rose of the valley. Then in the next section, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, moving on to 3, verse 5, we saw the relationship deepen, and they got more serious. We, we not, then we see him draw her out emotionally, um, calling her, her like a dove in the cleft of the rock and asking uh, her to be vulnerable with him. Her feelings for him deepen, and, and she speaks out a physical desire for, for intimacy between the two of them. Both of these opening sessions start with this strong admonition to their friends, do not awaken love until it is the proper time. It is just too powerful. Last time I was with you, we were in chapter 3, verse 6. We went to 5, verse 1. We saw the wedding and we saw the honeymoon. Um, she arrives on this, on this couch thing carried by men. She's protected. She's guarded by 60 of the finest warriors. Uh, we saw part of their honeymoon. Solomon goes through and he describes the beauty of his bride step by step. But when it comes to the actual lovemaking, we are, we are sort of ushered out of the room. And that remains this, this private, sacred event between the two of them. Today we're in chapter 5, verse 2. We're going to go through uh, chapter uh, 6, verse 3. Um, where the breaks are in Song of Solomon is tough. Every single scholar breaks it up differently. Uh, this is just, that's why we're not, you know, like chapter 1, chapter 2, it's, yeah, it's a little bit complicated. So, um, so that's, that's where, where we're going today. Today we're going to see them have a little tiff, a little bit of conflict in their marriage. Uh, we're going to see how they handle this little disagreement. Uh, and then we're going to end with, with a verse that, where it's a definite transition point, but uh, might be a little bit clouded on to what it actually means. But we'll go over that. Let's start. Chapter 5, verse 2. I slept, but my heart was awake. Uh, some people think that, that this is a dream sequence, that, that she's sleeping, but her heart awakes means that it's a dream. Some people think that her heart is Solomon, for he is still out working. Um, the word for heart actually means kind of inner thought, um, kind of one's mind, kind of that deep part of your core where you just kind of wrestle things. What, what we're likely seeing here is that she was saying, I was asleep, or at least I was trying to sleep. I was in bed, but my mind was just still turning. My mind was thinking. It was still going, but I'm in bed trying to get a good night's sleep. Uh, it continues, a sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with the dew, my locks with the drops of the night. This is a great line. She is in bed. She is trying to fall asleep. She is startled by this, by this knocking sound. She knocks. He comes to the door late at night. He, he, he says that his, 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 his head is wet with dew, his locks with the drop of the night. So he has been working late. It is so late that dew is starting to form. It could be that there's a little bit of mist outside. It is late. He is tired. He has been working all day. He is recently married, and he comes home to his wife who, as we will read in the next line, is naked and clean. And he says to me, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. 
Just what do you think this guy has on his mind? Ladies, when your husband comes to you at night and he says, hello, my sweet, my darling, my perfect one, my lover, my bride, my beautiful one, you know the man has an agenda, right? One that's going to keep you up for a while. It's worth pointing out that there's actually some pretty good poetry in how he works through this. He says, my sister, right? So, so an equal, uh, someone he cares deeply about. My love. Uh, the Hebrew word on that one is reos. This is a companion, a beloved female. Uh, then it grows. He says, my dove. Remember, he compares to her to a dove hiding in the rock cliffs and, and drawing her out in motion. Finally, he says, my perfect one. On their honeymoon night, he, he looks at her naked body and he says, there's no flaw in you. You are perfect. You are, uh, you are my perfect one. So his petition is well thought out. It's a, it's a pretty romantic petition. It covers all the facets of their relationship. It's a well-worded request. Now this woman, in chapter 1, compares her man to sweetness. In chapter 2, she says, May his left hand be under my head. May his right hand embrace me. Possible translation, fondle me. Chapter 3, she says, all night long, be a young stag on the mountains of Dether or on the mountains of separation. In chapter 4, she says, come, north wind, blow on my garden, let it breathe. Now, how do you suppose she's going to respond in chapter 5? I mean, according to all past experiences, like this woman is, is a sexual tiger. And, you know, if I was a young, naive, freshly married young man, I'd assume that we're on a pretty good trajectory here. You know, and things are just going to keep going up. Some of you are already looking ahead, aren't you? He responds, I had put off my garment. How can I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I spare them? Let me translate the Hebrew for you on this. This is Hebrew for I have a headache. This, this is Hebrew for uh, I'm really tired. Uh, you know, I just I have a lot on my mind. I'm not feeling uh, th- this is Hebrew for, you know, we have to get up early in the morning. Uh, you have to get up early in the morning. Feels a favor to you. Big secret thing. This is Hebrew for, for, for the brother ain't getting much. Now, I, I get that there are times where sex isn't feasible. Being clean and naked are not those times. Um, the word for garment that is used is undergarment. This is the garment that's worn against the skin. She's saying, that's gone. Um, she says that she's clean. She, she's wearing only what God gave her. She tells her husband these things, and then she tells him, you know, the door is just so far away from my bed. I'll be there. And so we have our first conflict. And, and the reason, and I want to be very careful here, folks, the reason that we have a conflict, it is not so much rooted in the fact that she has just denied him, but rather that she's being selfish. And it just so happens that in this case, that selfishness has manifested into refusal to be intimate with her husband. And we know that selfishness is at the root of this simply because her excuses are so really, really lame. So let me just drive home that at the root of this is selfishness. And selfishness is one of the worst ways that both of us, men and women, continue to offend, wound, hurt, 
our spouse time and time again. I mean, if we were to write down the last 20 times you hurt your spouse, I bet we could say selfishness as a root to a lot of this. Okay? So let's just remember that selfishness is at the root of this, but it's manifested itself in this denial. I was once told top three conflicts between married people, sex, money, and in-laws. Okay? And for whatever reason, Solomon skipped the in-laws and the money and just went straight to this. Okay? So we know that he knew what he was talking about. And, you know, conflict happens. It is not a matter of if, it is simply a matter of when. And when two sinners get married, you know, that's just part of life. The key, though, is in how we, how we deal with the conflict. So Solomon has come home. He has pretty high hopes of, of some fun activity with his wife. Instead, his wife tells him that she doesn't want to, so go away. Now, how does Solomon respond? And these next two verses... Are our, our key verses for this in, for this entire morning? If I could have you memorize two verses, I would have you memorize these next two verses. My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open the door to my beloved. My hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh, on the handles of the door. I would have you memorize those. A- and this is why. Solomon responds, he does not react. If you're taking notes, write that down. He responds, he does not react. When the husband is is turned down, first I want you to see that one, he doesn't force. He is incredibly gracious. He doesn't talk, he doesn't yell, he doesn't demand, he he, he doesn't quote other verses, you know, about marital duty and obligations and 1 Corinthians 7 and blah, blah, blah. He responds out of his character. He doesn't, res- he, he doesn't react out of hurt or emotion. Instead, Solomon reaches his hands through the door. So on the inside latch, where she would find it, he puts myrrh on the handle. And he puts it on the inside latch because that's where she will find it when she leaves. If you put it on the outside latch, she won't notice it. To put myrrh was a Valentine's card. It was a love note. It, 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 it was... It was a way of saying, I, this was a little I love you card. And he puts it where she will find it. Now let me just push this a little bit here, okay? Solomon was denied basic marital fundamental rights by his spouse who's being selfish. She's thinking over only of herself. And Solomon responds with, you know, hey babe, I just wanted to write you a little note. Tell you how special you are much I love you, that you're my girl, that I adore you, that I always love you. Sincerely, your young spouse. Isn't that classy? Isn't that mature? I mean, isn't that how you want your spouse to treat you when you're being a selfish, inconsiderate jerk? I mean, all of us have offended our spouse, hurt our spouse whether it's through our own sinful, wicked, misguided, thoughtless, selfish, evil desires. All of us have caused our spouse pain and sorrow and tears and frustration. And we're going to do it again because we ain't dead yet. Think back to your most recent selfish act and now imagine that rather than tears or yelling or pouting or cold shoulder, you get, hey babe, just a little note. 
does not react to the situation out of his mercy. Gentlemen, you are commanded in Ephesians to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, when you think of all the ways that Christians have slandered Christ, ignored Christ, denied Christ, used Christ for selfish gain, misunderstood Christ, never really got to know Christ, and yet Christ and his love are steadfast, solid, ever-giving, ever-present, ceaseless, never-ending. The world loves as a reaction to this or as a form of manipulation. We are commanded to initiate love to the unlovable because that is how Christ loved us. That is how Christ loved the church. And husbands, that is how you are commanded to love your wives. And the only way that you are able to respond in this way is through the influence of Jesus Christ in your heart and in your life. All right? Your natural flesh will revolt against this with everything it has. The only way we are able to pull this off is as we grow in our personal relationship with the Lord. So, back to Solomon, Solomon, Song of Solomon. Uh, so Solomon responds this way. He puts the myrrh on the left, which you're all going to memorize. How does he respond? He says, my heart was thrilled within me. Uh, Solomon just responded with grace and patience and understanding. Um, you know, when, when, when your spouse hurts you, what is the fear in responding gently to what they've just done, how they've offended you. Typically, the fear is, is that if, 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 if I let this go, that, that they're going to take advantage of me. If, that if I let them get away with this, then they're going to do it again and again and again, and I'm just going to get walked all over. Is that how this goes for Solomon? When he responded, when he did not react, when he responded, how did she respond? She says, my heart was thrilled within me. She grew in her desire for him. And folks, even on this tricky double meaning, because it's, it's sometimes translated as heart, it's sometimes translated as wound. So this could be an emotionally thrilled. It also could be that she grew in her sexual desire for him. Continues, verse 6. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. So she gets, gets up. She opens the door, but, but he's already left. Um, not in a huff. He just, she wanted some space, so, so he gives her some space. She continues on. The watchmen found me as they went about the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil. So it's the watchmen of the wall. Um, I've wrestled with this verse for a long time, trying to figure out who are the watchmen. And do the watchmen represent something or, or somebody? I have not found a single author, writer, commentator who offers any interpretation of the watchmen. And, um, yeah, and so I've just wondered about that for a long time. One, one person did give a, an interesting observation. They said that the watchmen are probably not literal simply because the watchmen would not treat between the ships, right? They, they would not treat... Solomon's bride this way. 
So if, if so what do the watchmen represent? Um, and, and I eventually kind of concluded that, that it's really not so much about w- what the watchmen represent, but, but more just the fact that she was afflicted. Okay? We, I, I don't think that we have evidence that she actually physically got roughed up. But so, I mean, is this guilt? Uh, is this conviction? Is this maybe the spirit of the Lord working in her heart? I don't know. But, but whatever the watchman represents, the, the core concept is that somehow, coming out of this, that she is afflicted. Right now, my best theory is, is some form of conviction. And if you got a better interpretation, I would love to hear it. Maybe some of you have some insight. Please share it with me. Um, I don't know. You, some of you understand the heart of a woman much better than I. She continues, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. So this woman is repentant. She is desperate to connect with her husband. Um, several different words uh, get translated as, as love, but this here this woman just has this deep, aching, emotional, and even sexual desire for her husband. Um, her friends reply, the chorus replies, what is your beloved uh, more than uh, than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another that you adjure us? Uh, so she petitions her friends, will you help me find him? And, and they come back and they rightfully ask, why? Like, what's so special about your man that we're going to exert a lot of time and energy to help you look for him and, and, in essence, help you reconcile your relationship? So the woman speaks next, and she goes through kind of the physical uh, description uh, uh, of him. And like everything we've encountered, there's multiple layers in all of this. She says, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. Earlier we saw the man compare his wife to a rose. He says, you're like a rose and all the other women are thorns to me. And so she says a similar thing back to him. She says, you're the best out of 10,000. If you were to line up 10,000 men, I choose you. Uh, it was interesting to learn that in, in, in the Hebrew language, 10,000 is the biggest number we ever see. So it could be maybe that, that 10,000 was even kind of the largest number that, that they even grasped. And so in some ways it's saying, uncountable men, you line them up, and I choose you. To say that he is radiant means that he is bright, that he is shining, uh, um, it to ruddy or, or ruddy. It means that he is healthy, that he is fit, and uh, so sh- you know she's just saying, out of all these men, you're you're bright, you're shining, you're fit. Uh, you are my man. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. Uh, his head is gold. This is probably a reference to his thoughts, to his mind. They are valuable. They are rare. They are something to be cherished. Uh, he has curly black hair. There's no gray in it. It's curly black, and she thinks it's really sexy. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. Just great eyes. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. This is another fun one. Uh, this man probably had a beard, and she is actually describing the smell of his beard. He looks nice. He smells nice. And many of you probably know that your spouse has a smell, right? Like there's a good one and there's a bad one, right? But, but it's a good smell. Um, I want 
from a gal who was widowed at a very young age, and she would pull out her husband's old sweatshirts and wear them because of the smell of that man. She loved that man. So this man has a smell, and she loves it, and she can, she can smell it in his beard. And lip drip, liquid myrrh. Um, could be a reference to speech, could be a reference to his kisses. His arms are rods of gold set with jewel. Uh, this could be a reference to hands. This could be like the way that he touches her, uh, how he's gentle with her. Uh, it could be that he has nice muscular arms. Some will translate this rounded gold. Like when we think of rods, we just think of kind of like a long, thin rod. Not the mental image here. This, this is rounded gold. So he probably has great biceps and they're just, they're bronzed in color. Uh, they're great to look at. His body is polished ivory, speckled with sapphires. Young people, just like plug your ears for the next five minutes. Um, this one is a bit tricky, all right? Uh, the literal interpretation here is intestines. So it's kind of an awkward compliment to say that, you know, your colon is like ivory, right? Um, we have three different possibilities. One is that this could mean he, like his abdomen, okay? Uh, just his, like this dude has really great abs, you know? And like those little muscles on the ribs that are so sexy. Like, I mean, he just has great, like just his torso is like carved ivory, just rock solid. Um, so that, and that's kind of probably the safest preferred interpretation. Um, it could mean belly, which was the seat of emotions. So it could be that his emotions are pure white. Um, the whiteness of ivory, uh, his emotions, his thoughts are pure white. The other option, it's a, a bit more risque, but the, the word that is translated body is sometimes actually translated in reference to his sexuality. And so this whole imagery of like an ivory tusk just gets pretty. Yep. So we're going to move on. Uh Imagine that only if it's appropriate. Verse 15. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. So he has strong, firm, sturdy legs. Um, this whole thing of like where you have columns and then a base of different material, a very common concept. It just his, his really great legs. He's on a sure foundation. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice of cedars. Um, so in this race, she steps back. She looks at his entire appearance. Okay? Lebanon was a strong country. Uh, it was a mountainous region, so he is strong, almost imposing. Uh, to be like choice cedars is to be tall and strong. So he has this imposing stature and strength. His mouth, okay, so she stepped back. She's done kind of a full overview, great-looking young man. His mouth is most sweet. And he is altogether desirable. So last compliment bef before concluding, altogether desirable, is that his mouth is sweet. Literal translation, his palate is sweet. So it could be, once again, reference to kisses. Okay, she finds his kisses sweet, delectable, pleasurable. Uh, inside the mouth, so once again, we're hitting that French kiss, which they should be giving credit for, not the French. It could be, though, a reference to his speech. That he speaks kindly. That he speaks sweetly. That, 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 and, and really in many ways, this fits better 
because she's just finished this whole kind of head-to-toe physical comparison, and then so she comes back to the top to a blip, and she says his, you know, his, she says the most sweet thing to him. Gentlemen, you can have a fantastic body, and most of you do. I'm not going to tell anybody. But if you want to make it all the way to altogether desirable, you have to include the sweet Gentle word, loving word, complimentary word. We see earlier in the chapters that Solomon spoke to her mind and he spoke to her heart. And so Chrissy says that his, his mouth is most sweet. Women are complicated, right? Can we just own that? And Solomon is trying to help you out here, fellas. Give you some clues, give you some hints. Okay, so you can keep chewing the crunches, but don't forget the main focus. This is my beloved. This is my friend. Our daughters look very pleased. I love this phrase. She calls him beloved, but she also calls him a friend. It is good when your spouse is also your friend. I think actually women gravitate to this more naturally than men. But it is a good thing in your relationship when your spouse is also your best friend. It's a great line, and it just shows us the deep connectedness between the two. So her friends, the, the, the posse of friends, they're pretty impressed by this. In chapter 6, verse 1, they says, Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful of women? Where is your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? So her, her friends are convinced, yep, your guy is fantastic. We're going to help you look for him. Now this next part confuses me greatly, and in my defense, it seems to confuse all the scholars greatly as well too and so there's really no agreeance on what it means but she responds with my beloved has gone down to his garden to the beds of spices to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies i am my beloved's and my beloved is mine he grazes among the lilies so the first part that's confusing is that she has just petitioned all of her friends to help her find this man and they say wow he is remarkable where is he and then she goes oh i know where he's at he's right over here so storyline, that's a little bit odd to say, could you please help me find my man? But I know, I, I actually know where he's been this entire time. Like it is so confusing. Some people think that this whole previous dialogue, she was just talking to herself, like just walking around saying, my husband is so wonderful, just kind of having this imaginary conversation. So we, we, we don't know what's going on. Um, but that's not even the really confusing part. Uh, verse 2, my beloved has gone down to his garden to the beds of spices to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. Now, there, there are a couple people, um, as I've been reading and researching, who, who I really respect. And they say that this is literal, that Solomon went out and, I mean, like they had gardens. So he just, he went for a walk in the gardens. And, and storyline, that is fantastic. Because in the next chapter, you're going to see him talk, and so you can kind of shape it as them kind of forgiving and extending forgiveness and, and working through this verbally before, before they come back together in, in intimacy. Analogy-wise, it doesn't fit at all that suddenly we're dealing with literal gardens, um, that somehow he took his seat into gardens made for, for humans, you know, that he's like great. So it's, 
Analogy-wise, it, it kind of falls apart, and a lot of people think that, that, that we're back to a reference of marital intimacy here. Uh, on their and this, a lot of this is based on their marital intimacy and her use of the word garden. I'm not going to review that, but you can go back and review that if you want. Um, but, but kind of the dominant opinion, though, is, is that they've come back together sexually. So, so which is it? Well, I don't know. Um, if your desire is for a storyline that's slow and gentle and long walks in the garden smelling the flowers before they reconcile, and maybe he has a lot of sheep with him in your garden, we can take that route. That is an option available to us. Um, if, but if your desire is for a romantic storyline that has them reunited in this burst of passion after their, their little argument, we can take that option as, as well, too. Despite the confusion on verse 2, it still ends with, with verse 3. Uh, and, and there are grammatical cues that, that this is kind of the, the end for this next section. But she says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And if he's out in the garden, then she just has this knowing certainty that despite their conflict, they belong to one another. And if they're reengaging in intimacy, she has this knowing confidence that they belong to one another. What's interesting, though, is that she sticks up the word mine. The first time this phrase is used, she says, he is mine, I am his. But this time, she says, I am his, and he is mine. And so despite their conflict, d despite her selfishness, despite all that's gone on, despite the hardship, she still has this solid, confident, knowing assurance that despite the hardship they belong to him and he still belongs to me there is no fear in this relationship you guys remember your memory verse my beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me I arose to open my beloved and my hand gripped within me my fingers just lifted me and my hand opened up for her. It's beneficial for both men and women to know this verse. So I do want to take a few moments and just and once again speak to the men on this one. Because men, I firmly believe that you are under a divine order to be the leader in your home. And as such, it is important that you be the first to know this, to understand this, and to take the lead on this. When conflict happens, not if it happens, when it happens, when you get wronged, when your spouse behaves selfishly, when you don't get what you hope for, when you don't get what you're entitled to, you respond, you do not react. All of us, by our sinful nature, are going to want to react. But it is only through Jesus, that as you guys grow in that relationship with Jesus, that you can develop a character that will help you respond and not react. There's all kinds of self-help books and witty little sayings and that kind of thing. A lot of those only address, address this period. You guys have to be, um, you know, growing in Christ-likeness, reading your Bible, spending time in prayer, spending time in fellowship with other Christians, having Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, all right? These are the tools that you were given to change your character. 
man has to just be immersing yourself in that. What happened to this couple will happen to all of us. All right? We will offend, we will hurt one another, but if you want a healthy marriage, you respond, you don't react, and the only way that you develop that is through Jesus working in your heart and you bring them in. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your scripture. Thank you for its relevance. Thank you that a poem written some 3,000 years ago can still teach us how to interact with our spouses today. And Lord, so much of, you know, the culture has changed and the environment has changed and the technology has changed. But God, you remain steadfast and your truth remains steadfast. God, I pray for all the men in this room that that you would start with them, that you would start with us, Lord, and that you would teach us how to respond and, and how not to react. That you would lead us in the way of, of initiating love, of being a steady, relentless fountain of love that, does, that, that loves regardless of how we are treated. Lord, start with me, start with us. streams of grace flow Sing. 